Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. And we are obsessed with flipping puberty positive. Puberty is a stage of life best described as a roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts. It happens to literally every human being on earth. And it shouldn't be cringy. It should feel, you know, pretty comfortable. Which is why we started this podcast and a newsletter and why we film slightly ridiculous but informative social media videos. It's why we have a brand that makes clothes that literally feel so comfortable and why we write books too. Our latest is This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We have built a universe of puberty positivity and it all started with this podcast. We are so happy that you're here. Vanessa, I'm so happy to be introducing this episode today because we have a guest today, Phyllis Fagel, who is, I don't know if there's a word to describe her better than the word delightful. (laughs) Phyllis is a wealth of information. She is an incredible communicator and she is simply delightful. We haven't even known Phyllis that long, but she is the warmest, kindest, most joyful person. But that's not why she's on the podcast. She has cred. She has cred. (laughs) She's a nationally board certified school counselor, a therapist who works with kids and families in private practice, and an author and journalist. She is the author of two fantastic books best-selling books, Middle School Matters, and her new book, Middle School Superpowers. And she's a frequent contributor to Washington Post, including an awesome piece she wrote about us. Making her delightful. (laughs) So we had the pleasure of speaking with Phyllis at Sidwell, and now 
everyone gets to hear Phyllis's insights and empathy and humanity and her passion for supporting and caring for kids through these very tumultuous years. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Phyllis. Hi. It is so great to have you here. It's actually very strange because I feel like I said this to you earlier. I feel like I've known you for a really long time, but really we just met like two weeks ago. I feel the same way. And I feel like you're one of those people who there will come a time when I don't even remember not knowing you. <laughs> Can we make that plural? Yes. yes. Your, your, your plural, <laughs> two of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of the reason that we feel so connected is because we are all steeped in the body odor of middle school. <laughs> in the stink of middle school. In the stink of middle school, in the foot smell of middle school, in the oiliness of middle school. But spoiler alert, we all kind of love being in this wonderful cesspool of middle school, which is so gross. I'm sorry if anyone's like vaguely nauseous, I promise to stop with the middle school analogies and physiology. Well, not the physiology, just the gross analogies. Phyllis, I want to ground this conversation in a quote you have in your new book, Middle School Superpowers, which is your second book after Middle School Matters, which is like, we should all have those t-shirts and wear them every single day. You have a quote in there and it's going to like direct the rest of the conversation. And it's from a student of yours, a sixth grade boy. And he said to you, can we just skip it? And you said to him, health class? And he said, no, puberty. And it's just like the the way kids are brilliant in the most amazing ways, that is so brilliant. Can you just like bring us back to that moment and that interaction? I was wondering where you were going with that quote. <laughs> there are so many possibilities, <laughs> too, because it's so poignant. We've all been there. Boy, girl, whether we went through puberty early or went through puberty late, it's just so awkward and awful. And one of the stories I share in the book is about the time I went to that particular student's class and I set a timer. I teach sex ed and I was setting a timer to see how long it took them to go from completely freaked out, wigging out, shrieking, running around the hall to ready to learn. And it was an excruciatingly long six minutes. <laughs> but they got there and they wanted the information. And that's why I'm so happy that you wrote the book you wrote. This I'm so excited for This Is So Awkward to be out because I feel like as awkward as it is, as much as they want to avoid it, he was saying that because he does want that information because he is anxious about the unknown more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, you so beautifully, we're gonna get to that the importance of the uncertainty and how to support and love kids through the uncertainty. But can you tell listeners about yourself and why you are like the perfect person? I, You're like the Rosetta Stone of, of people uh. to have written this book about middle school. Can you just share a little bit about your journey and who you are so people can understand that? Yes, sure. And actually, one of the things I should share is that when I wrote Middle School Matters, which was my first book about middle school, I was a brand new middle school counselor. I had been a school counselor for a long time. I'd been a therapist for a long time. But it just so happened that when I started in this middle school, after being in elementary and being in high school, I also was going through middle school as a parent for the first time. 
And I didn't have one kid in middle school. I had two kids in middle school, one year apart from one another. And suddenly I didn't feel so confident. And I had gone into it with a lack of humility, I would put it that way, because I had spent so much time working with kids that I thought, surely how different could it be if I've done younger kids and older kids? And it was just a complete sea change. And I was so ill-prepared. And so I went looking as any good nerd will do. We were talking earlier about how we love to nerd out about this stuff for anything that would help me be a better school counselor, that would help me guide parents, help me guide the kids that I was working with, who my heart went out to them every day. It was so hard and they were so earnest and so well-intentioned and it was so messy and they were so socially clumsy. And they also smelled, you're right about that. I have to tell them. <laughs> to use deodorant. I hadn't had to do that before. And so when I went looking for that information, there was nothing. There really was this void. And so I had been a journalist before I was a school counselor. And I decided that I would write the book that I wanted to read and the articles that I wanted to read. And I just never stopped because in addition to there being a lack of information, it is the most fun age to write about. Totally. Can you talk a little bit about that new moment of being in middle school and being on the front lines, you know, you communicate with adults. You had communicated professionally with adults as a journalist for a long time. What was the gear shift that was required to communicate with middle school students? And what are some pearls of wisdom you can give to the listeners who are, many of whom are starving for information about how to talk their talk? So the first is to understand that as much as it seems like they're pushing you away and they don't want you involved in their life, they actually want you more than ever. They very much care what you think. They care what their teachers think about them. There's nothing worse than dropping a notch in the eyes of the adults who are taking care of them or who are educating them. At the same time, suddenly they're so aware of how they stack up to others their bodies are in change. Everything about them is in change, including their friendships. So they can have one kid who is playing with Legos and Barbies and another who's ranking crushes and wearing makeup, which means that those friendships might go in different directions. So they want to know how to handle all of that because they don't feel like they have a handle on it at all. But you have to do it in a very different way than you spoke to your elementary school kid. So when they go quiet, often it's because they're either unsure how to label how they're feeling Young adolescents have a really hard time knowing what's even going on in the first place. They are afraid that they might get an overreaction, that they might disappoint a parent, that they might betray that they don't know what they're doing. And that can be really tricky for them. They don't want you to pry and everything feels personal. So you have to give them some emotional distance when you talk to them. And they are studying you for any sign of inauthenticity. So if there is any kind of misalignment between your body language, the words you choose, the facial expression, the tone. If you even pause between saying, I don't care what grade you get. If you tell them in advance, <laughs> you care what grade they get. And then they you sniff it out. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we're going to get to inauthenticity for sure. But I want to start at the beginning because as you're describing all of this, what's dawning on me is some middle schools start in fifth grade, some middle schools start in sixth grade, some kids are young for the grade, some kids are old for the grade. So we're talking about actually more like a three-year span of kids as they're entering this period of life. Where is the lever switch? Where is the point at which the parents of the younger grade school kids 
need to be able to transition into a different type of communication because it doesn't happen just because you walk through the middle school doors, or maybe it does because middle schools don't have windows. Do you ever notice that? <laughs> middle are, schools so don't... many are like jails. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So maybe that's the environmental, you know, the, like the epigenetics of it. But how do you feel that switch as as the adult who's guiding a kid? And and is it okay if you've got a fourth grader who's starting to, you know, have hairy eyeballs at you? Uh, is it time to make the switch even before they're in middle school? So obviously you have to work with the kid who's in front of you. So you might have a really precocious fourth grader who's going through puberty early and who is suddenly really self-conscious or wants more privacy or closes the door and shuts down more. And so much of parenting is experimental and figuring out how to reach your kids. So one kid, you might need to communicate by leaving notes on the counter back and forth. Another one might do better in the car. Another might do better when you're taking a walk. You have to be ready to have those conversations the way they want to have them when they want to have them. So it might be late at night when you are really exhausted and or want to pay bills or clean the dishes. But if that's when they are getting that second wind and want to have that conversation because they're too tired after school, after dealing with an onslaught of emotions in the halls and the classes all day long, if you want to be able to connect, you have to be willing to do it on their terms. Yeah, I mean, it's like sometimes you just have to suck it up and be like, you have to pause Netflix and engage in the conversation that two hours ago you would have been very happy to engage in. But now at 945, you're like, dude, I'm not having this. But you you have to do it when they want to do it, which takes me to our next question. So often this age is referred to, and you do this in the book in quotes, the age of embarrassment, but you're encouraging people to think of it as an age of opportunity. How do we, how do we find that opportunity? How do we reframe our frustration, our disappointment, our loneliness, our irritation, whatever it is, and come to see it as a time of opportunity with these kids? And we agree with you. We are on board. We are reframing this. This is a positive moment. This can be funny and beautiful and wonderful. And yet it's really, really hard. So help us reframe it, Phyllis. It is the heart that gives you the opportunity because the kids are learning from those setbacks, from those disappointments, from taking risks that may or may not go the way they had hoped that they would go. And that's where the opportunity lies. They try out for a travel team and they get cut or all of their friends have a party and don't invite them or they get a grade in a class that they thought they were good in and it's not the grade they wanted. Every single one of those hits hurts and they should, as I say in the book, but they're also a time when you can help them recover, but not only recover from that particular incident, but learn how to recover from whatever comes next. So that's what makes it an opportunity. I call it the last best chance. (laughs) I was like, oh God, I only have one left in middle school. So (laughs) yes, after a talk last night, I want to clarify what I mean by last best chance because I had a whole panicked room of parents who said, but I have a ninth grader. Did I miss? Yes, you missed it. You're done. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the last best chance. It's not the last chance. (laughs) Okay. So I can still salvage one child. Fair enough. Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Is there a place to see the positives as resilience building as well? Because I feel like we're really good at identifying traumas 
they can be micro traumas, but traumas seal in the brain and then you can get them through and you can do the whole recover thing. And that's such a great growth experience and that builds grip. But how about the good stuff? How about, right? Yeah, so I love that question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before, but one of the things I'm always telling teachers is that it's so critical with this age group to set kids up for success. And I feel the same way on the home front because success begets success. And when kids are able to do something with independence when they feel like they've done it in a way that showcases that they have a skill in some particular arena. It builds their confidence. It makes them feel competent. It addresses that developmental need to feel agency, to feel like you have a purpose that you can give back to the community. And taking them down a notch or focusing on their deficits is totally counterproductive. In fact, when kids in this age group vocalize what they're thinking inside. They're incredibly self-critical. Mm-hmm. Anything we want to be doing, what we can do to combat that. If you can get your child to bring to the surface that negative internal dialogue, what I love to then say to them is, okay, I hear you. What are two good things about that perceived weakness? Mm. Because every so-called flaw comes with some hidden strengths, even if it's something that makes you more empathetic to other people. So let's play out a scenario, Phyllis, that may or may not have happened in one of our homes last night. (laughs) In one of our homes where there's a middle schooler. (laughs) Where there is an eighth grader who, you know, may have a lot of strengths, but organization and problem solving is not one of them. Who may have been told two nights ago that if he did not bring his planner home to write down all of his assignments he would lose his phone privileges the following night if he forgot his planner again. And lo and behold, Phyllis, what do you think (laughs) happened last night? I have a wild guess (laughs) that there was no planner. There was no planner. Oh God, I forgot the planner. And the phone privileges were taken away for the night. Yeah. They went what? the way of the planner. It went the way of the planner, <laughs> except the planner is probably already in a garbage can somewhere in the school hallway. No. The phone the was, phone may be very the soon. The phone was yeah. prominently on the kitchen counter. Phyllis, what does a conversation sound like with a middle school kid who comes home and I'm asking for a friend? Um, what, <laughs> what, what, what should? <laughs> what does or what should? What should have the what should have the conversation sounded like last night in someone's home? Getting at that focus on the strengths, being aware of the self-critical nature of kids this age, yeah. trying to build optimism and opportunity. What does it sound like? You know, so the key thing is first understanding that all kids are disorganized in this age group. That ability to do future planning or to predict that if I don't for the second time bring home my calendar, my phone will get taken away. It's not as intuitive for a child of that age as it would be for an adult. So it's not deliberate, you know, trying to just get you as irritated as possible. This is really a skill that he needs to work on. And they have so much emotional interference going on, which doesn't leave as much room for them to do things like remember that calendar, which doesn't feel in the moment as important. So you want to be giving them a runway back to being in your good graces and you want to set them up for success. So what I might have a conversation with him about first, once you're not angry and you're not having a battle over the phone 
to say, you know what, that was frustrating for me. And I imagine it was really frustrating for you because the last thing you wanted was for your phone to be taken away. And it's probably stressful to not know what homework you need to do. Cara, lately, I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine, and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep. And I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors ready-to-eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never-frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. 
You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. That's a terrible feeling too. Ask permission. Can I problem solve with you? It always is useful to ask permission to help. If he says yes, and usually if you ask respectfully, then a child will say yes because it's unpleasant for them. Let's talk about some things you could do. What do you think might help you? If they're stuck, give them a little distance and say something like, have you noticed if your friends, you have any friends who've had more success with this? What are they doing differently? Is there one thing that you could try that you've noticed other people do? Could you put a special safety pin on your locker or a special magnet so that you can't leave without moving that magnet, which will remind you? Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. How about about caution tape? Should I suggest (laughs) whatever works? Can we do a short sidebar on planners for yes. a second? Oh, okay. my favorite. Because this particular example is a very universal one, Vanessa. And I think, thank you for bringing it up. Thank you. Um, I, feel, it, I feel valid. <laughs> it, is, it is one that transcends the years. Because as you were going through those questions, Phyllis, what I was thinking was I was flashing back to the moments when my kids were in middle school and we had those exact same conversations. I didn't do them quite as well as you're describing, but, and the answer was, (laughs) yeah, but the answer was, I don't want to use a planner. No one uses a planner. My assignments are all online. I've got this. You went to school in a time where there was paper. We don't use paper anymore. And the reason I want to digress here for a second is There are examples of things that come up, particularly in middle school, where there's a conflict between the way that we did it that was comfortable and good for us and actually builds important future skills and the ways that they do it now that feel completely chaotic and disorganized. And yet it is the new world order. And so I suspect that one of the reasons the planner was actually left behind is that the planner feels irrelevant, that the planner is about us and what works for us. And they don't understand what we're trying to teach, which is basic organizational skills that are transferable across different media. So like, can we stick with the planner for a second? And Phyllis, can you share your best advice about that sort of when you've got an outdated teaching tool out there that you know as the parent is an important one, but the kids are just pushing, pushing, pushing back on. Yes. So, well, first I I just, I'm going to share another quote from the book that I love because it was a kid who came to me and he said, could I meet with you today to talk about organization and planning and my calendar? And I stifled a smile and I said, sure. How about two o'clock? And he said, actually, I don't really want to meet, but can you just tell my mom that we did? (laughs) He had promised his mom that he would meet with me at organization. This is just not a priority for them, but also it's a skill set that they completely lack. And part of the problem is the calendar itself. It's not that it's paper. It's that it is 
I'm looking at mine right now. So mm-hmm. it's where we've got a month at a glance, a week at a glance, and they need to have everything in front of them on one page visible. So what I do with kids who are struggling with organization is I have them, first they have the chicken scratch in their calendar or there's nothing. If there's nothing, we skip the whole calendar entirely and we have one piece of paper, fold it in half. One side is today. The next side is tomorrow. Mm. And what you do is the night before you write down everything that they need to do on the today side. As they do things over the course of the day, they cross them out. As their teacher gives them new things to do, they add I'm holding up mine. Yes. Literally. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, anything that wasn't done or anything that's new gets moved to the tomorrow column Mm. and you start over. And so if they have a school calendar, often what middle schools will do is they require everyone to use the same organizational system, have the same binder system. The -hmm. reason they do that is because they want them to have a system. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not so they use that same exact system forever. Once they understand what it means to have a system, they can retool it and figure out what works for them. And so dropping the rope a little bit and saying, I get it. This is not the system you're ultimately going to use. It's probably not even the best one for most people. That makes sense to me. You have to learn a system in order to be able to come up with your own system. This is just a starting point. Also, I really want my kids to feel that sense of deep satisfaction when you get to cross something off. <laughs> There's like nothing like that feeling. You mean writing it down only so you can cross it I, off? Some people might have a glass of wine. I just cross things off my list. Just, like oh, it is my Done, done. <laughs> yeah. I can throw this to-do list out. Meanwhile, I'm, my drawer, my desk drawer is filled with post-it notes with the to-dos that like <laughs> I'm scared to go back and look at what I didn't actually do. <laughs> so you are providing two things. You're providing developmental perspective on where kids are and where it's fair to expect them to be and where we need to cut them some slack. And FYI, they're not like choosing to be assholes. They are like, this is where they are in life. They don't mean it. They can't help it. And it's our job to kind of give them, as you say, an on-ramp back and sometimes just a little bit of empathy and validation. But the other thing that you talk about, and some of it's tactical, but there's another framework that you offer, Phyllis, which is the juxtaposition of where kids are socially, right? You talked about the like really complex social reality of you know, parties that are happening and hallway socializing and all of that stuff with the complete dearth of lived experience to help inform how you're supposed to navigate not getting invited to a party. Whereas we, as adults, have had many opportunities to feel what it feels like to not get invited to a party and to live in that hurt and that upset. So, Can we use that as an example? And can you set us up for how, as caregivers, we can navigate the complex social reality with the lack of lived experience and how we can help them kind of move their life a little closer together and get some information? So a kid comes home and they found out that somebody's having a birthday party. Their whole friend group is going to a birthday party except for them. What do we do? So this is something that I give a very similar example in the book. It's a kid who everybody gets together on a Friday night without him. And 
what I did with this particular kid who was just so devastated because, and since he's a middle schooler, it wasn't just that they were excluding him or having fun without him. It was also that they excluded him so they could trash talk him all night in his head. That was his narrative. That was his narrative. He was going straight to the absolute most catastrophic place that his brain would take him, which is something that middle schoolers are particularly good at. And of course, we as adults know that it's unlikely they were even thinking about him that much, that at worst they had excluded him, but probably weren't interested in spending their entire evening talking about him. But again, as you said, dearth of life experience. So we want to teach kids what you call cognitive flexibility. So the ability to entertain the possibility that someone didn't intend to hurt them. It's not about talking them out of feeling bad. It's not about convincing them that they're wrong. In fact, when I do the exercise I'm going to explain, I always start by saying, you don't have to believe the alternative explanations you come up with. Mm. Because if they have to believe it, they are going to resist right. the exercise. So with this kid, I said, I want you to come up with three possible reasons they didn't invite you to hang out other than they hate you and want to spend the entire night talking about you. <laughs> and... This is like broad life advice. Let's just be very clear. <laughs> this is middle school advice, but this is broad. Okay, go. Yes. It's like everything you need to learn, you can learn in middle school if you get it right. hundred <laughs> percent. So it took him a while to even come up with one. Even when I told him it could be that aliens abducted them, you know, it could be anything. And eventually he wrote down, well, they're all on the baseball team together mm. and they had practice. And maybe they just decided to hang out afterwards. And it wasn't that they excluded me. It's just that they were together and I wasn't top of mind. And then he looked up at me and he goes, oh my gosh, I think that's what happened. And if we didn't go through that exercise, there's not a chance he would have walked himself to that better place. And when kids can at least consider the possibility that it's a less dire outcome or a less dire reason for that behavior, then they have a much, much better middle school experience. And as kids get beyond middle school and as they develop sort of more inherent interests, like things that they're really into, one might be into music, one might be into sports, whatever, and they start to diverge a little bit. And there's this friend group that exists and this fabric that exists, but also divergent interests. It can really, exactly what you're describing can continue and be amplified and having that skill set to go back and look at, you know, why might you not have been included and how might you change your behavior or what might you say in order to let them know you want to be included. This is, you know, again, like all the skills you ever learn in middle school apply to everything else. This is huge. It is huge, especially among under communicators who don't want to say anything or don't, you know, they're they're in their quiet stage or they'd rather shut the door or they just want to feel wallow in their misery, right? To tell them once they have identified it to over communicate a little bit feels like a really healthy solution, which also feels gendered a little, like, right? I mean, it's not that natural for many guys and some girls to over-communicate, but it's a good pool to put your toe into. And I'll add to that, that they have such weak social skills at that age, uh, particularly boys and verbal skills. And when you combine the huge social risk that's involved in speaking, right. plus 
the lack of language to articulate that they need so much concrete help. And I think parents often think that middle schoolers are too old for that kind of concrete help. Mm. Found over and over again that kids really appreciate very concrete, practical advice. How do you talk to someone? What do you say if you want them to include you? How do you ask someone to sit at the table? How do you make plans? And recognizing, even if we do it in a way that's a little bit sneaky, you know, we we talk about something that we personally are struggling with and how we solved it or something from the movies, just giving them those tools is so helpful to them. And they'll reject it. Like if they're, if they're not into it, they'll be very clear. And they'll be like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not doing that. Well, and this particular group of middle schoolers missed those years during COVID of building the blocks of how do you ask someone for a play date? How do you text someone when you newly have a phone? Like they don't know how to do, I mean, the amount of time I've had to spend with my younger kids saying, oh, well, what would... I mean, one of my kids was answering the phone. He's just like, what? And I was like, no, 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 sweetheart. You can't, you can't answer the phone, you know, or it's like the text conversation is shocking. Um, And so they, even more, they need those building blocks. I mean, one of the things you get at in the book, which is something we talk about all the time is like, Adults assume that kids this age worry about like really big existential stuff, right? When really the things that are keeping them up at night are like really logistical, tactical. And and, and the it's funny because the example you use that is something we do in our workshops, which is like kids worry about getting their periods and they're not worrying about like does this mean I'm an adult now? And, you know, what does this mean about the future of my life? They're like, what happens if I leak in school? Like, that's what they were. Or like, how do I get my pad from my backpack to the bathroom? Like the logistical stuff. How can adults talk to kids in a way that meets them at that place? How do we move from our like grand meta worrying to where they are, which is like really nuts and bolts kind of stuff. One of the ways I do it in the school setting that it's harder to mimic at home is to have kids write down their concerns anonymously. But what I can offer from doing that enough times over the years is that kids are very interested in knowing how to solve very basic problems. Mm say I need a pad at school, who can I talk to? And then what do I say to them? And when during the day, can I go and get that pad? And so what you can do at home to get almost at that same information or to get at their concerns is to say something like, what do you think the other kids in your class are worrying about when it comes to puberty? Or have you noticed if anybody is already going through puberty? Is that weird? Are you worried about being the first? Are you worried about being the last or sharing stories from your own life that just open that door? Recognizing that they may be very quiet because it's an uncomfortable conversation to have and also having lots of things around where they can get the information they want. And that's true for anything, not just puberty. Often kids want to know information about, could be as simple as homework. You know, mm-hmm. How do people keep track of all of the things that they need to do? How do you not bring every single book you own back and forth from school to home. Right. How are you supposed to know what you need? Little things like that. That's the kind of logistical stuff they want to know. 
You know, what's so funny about the conversation is I, I just keep thinking everything we're talking about feels like we could have had this conversation about toddlers mm-hmm. heading into preschool, the concreteness, the need for guidance and framing, the need for help to identify how they feel and put a word with their emotion. It really is a second wave of that. And at its core, what it feels like is our middle schoolers, whether they're in fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade, or if your middle school goes all the way up to eighth grade, there's something about the environment of middle school that feels a little bit like I am the sun and the planets revolve around me. And the goal as we get kids through middle school is to reframe their experience into, no, I'm a planet and there are all these other really great planets around me and they're all a little bit different for me and we're all revolving in the same orbits or in slightly different orbits in the same universe, but I'm not the center. I'm not the epicenter. And that epicenter piece, that's what feels reminiscent of the toddler years. Like you don't exist outside of me. And there's that I feel like that's what makes these years a little challenging. And that's what your guidance is so valuable because you're teaching people, the kids themselves and the adults in their lives, how to help kids pull out of that frame of mind. I love that analogy. I'm going to have to think about that some more. Or they're like, everyone else is in the universe and I have been like sent to a far off universe and I'm all by myself and like there's- Oh, yeah. there's no planets and no I'm sun. I'm in a black hole. And I am heading towards a black hole and everybody yes. else is hanging around the sun. Okay. I mean, it's like these very extreme, like emotional states. And by the way, from day to day, it could be, your kid could be one or the other. Phyllis, oh, yeah. you are like boots on the ground. You are like the insight that every parent wishes they could have because you see the day-to-day interactions. And when the kids come home from school and they're like, what happened today? How was your day? And your kid is like, fine, nothing happened. I'm going to go up to my room now. You get to see it all. And so from your perspective, can you tell our listeners like, People have all this crappy stuff to say about middle school and middle schoolers. What do they get wrong about the like wonderfully wacky alchemy of like a middle school hallway? So I love the age for a lot of reasons. One is that they're really funny. They can sometimes walk over that line and be a little bit. (laughs) uh, Sometimes. Sometimes, but they are. Uh, funny. I think one of the misconceptions is that kids in this age group are mean and drama seeking. They're just socially clumsy most of the time. They can't anticipate how saying to somebody that's that's a weird shirt might not feel so good. Like they just say it and then it doesn't work. To so us they, too. They say it to us too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I would <laughs> I want to be clear that when my own now 15-year-old was 14 or 13 in middle school, way I, back when. Way back when, yeah, <laughs> same exact experiences. All of the parents listening, I, I quote him in the book. There was one day he came home and I said, what'd you do? Sixth grade, what did you do in school? And he said, I had PE. And I said, and what'd you do in PE? He said, I ran. I said, could you expand on that? He said, around the track. <laughs> so I don't get That's this. a lot of words, Phyllis. <laughs> and I'm really excited you got all of them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, you know, enjoy it because this is really an opportunity to 
connect with them and shape their values in ways that might not seem readily obvious because they're quieter or because they're more resistant, at least externally. But I can tell you from the inside the school perspective, because they quote their parents to me all of the time, they're listening to every last word you say. And 95% of their decisions are guided by whether or not it will make you proud. Mm. It may never be that important to them ever again, as it is in middle school. Can we run with that for a second? Yeah. Because if the vast majority of what's driving their decisions is making the adult, the primary adults in their lives proud, help us to guide the primary adults or people who are listening to this podcast right now figure out how to be proud about the right things. Like mm. it's really hard to figure that out, right? I'll give you an example. One of my kids is more athletic than the other. I always swore I would never sort of harbor fantasies about that kid being an excellent athlete. But in fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade, I would catch myself being that parent who would get sucked down a rabbit hole of, should I put them on the travel team? Should I do this? Should I do that? which are all sort of metrics of pride, right? And I struggled with what the world around me was telling me to do versus what I thought success looked like. And I was filtering all that, trying to figure out kind of how could I message him? And he, I think, saw through all of it, right? I mean, they so help us understand what's the right ball to keep your eye on as the adult in their life when they really do care about you being proud. You want to pay attention to what they bring up, what they want to talk about, because if it is all conversation about the things that they already do well, it changes their internal narrative. It drowns out their own inner voice that would otherwise direct them and tell them what their passions are and where their strengths and passions might intersect. Middle school is such a great time for experimentation, for dropping activities and trying new things. Kids have a very hard time quitting something if they're good at it, if they know that they've gotten accolades for it Mm -hmm. or their parents have invested a lot of time driving them places or spending money, again, goes back to wanting to make parents proud. And so if we over message the things that they do well, or that we're investing a lot of time in to foster their skills, then it makes it very, very hard for them to develop the kind of self-awareness that will allow them to make the shifts and tweaks to their schedule and to their activities to really discover what's meaningful to them. And at the end of the day, what we want is for them to discover what they like and what brings them joy, not for them to simply walk around the world doing what we think they should like or what we think they're good at. So get out of their way. Yeah. Let go. As Vanessa says, leave your baggage at the door. You know, don't. this isn't your puberty. This isn't your middle school life. And, and notice the things that aren't stereotypical strengths that people get praised for. The kids that have the hardest time in middle school often are the ones who don't excel in the classic areas like sports or being the most popular. I did a talk last night with a reporter who was recalling the, I think it was the super seven. It was the seven most popular girls. And here she was, you know, 49 years old. And she was recalling, she was a hundred percent not part of the super seven. And she could still remember when it's, it's so it's so <laughs> present for people. It's like they carry that feeling with them like forever. And we can do a whole let's do another podcast about how 
the kids are very clear as young as first or second grade that popularity is both coveted and not particularly well-respected. Like when you ask kids about the popular kids, they will say, I don't want to be a popular kid because, you know, I don't like how popular kids act, but I want to be a popular kid because I want to be popular. There's a real conflict and popular kids don't always self-identify as popular for that reason. They don't want to carry the negative cloak. I mean, there's so much to say about that. It is a really complicated subject. And I can tell you from my stance that the popular kids are definitely not the happiest kids. Mm -hmm, Happiest kids are often the quirky kids who are out in left or right field and they found their one or two people that they really connect with and just don't have time for that kind of, you know, silliness in their mind. It's just that important. The worst are the kids who are desperate to be part of that crowd or hanging on by a thread and are at the periphery. So even noticing things like, I really love how when that friendship wasn't working for you or when you were coming home, not feeling great about it day after day, rather than continuing to try to insert yourself into that group, I love how you invited somebody else over who you didn't know that well. That was really brave and really mm. and And I, I, I admire your courage and making sure that we are communicating that we appreciate those kinds of risky gestures that they might be making in their own lives that are hard to be different than the norm. I love that so much. It's like, it's like when they were little and they came home with art projects and in your head, you're like, what the hell is this? And you're trying to find something encouraging and positive to say. And I remember it was like the kindergarten art teacher was like, ask them about their color choices, ask them about the shapes they decided to make. And And all of a sudden I had like the language and the framework to have that conversation, which felt, as Cara said earlier, it feels inauthentic, but the kids hear it as like, I'm interested in you. I'm proud of you. I love you. I support you. Yeah. So it's like, wow, that was super brave and acknowledging how hard it is to make those shifts and those changes, which are brutal for the kids. I mean, the, the amount of thought and processing that went into a kid making a shift, inviting someone over, leaving a group, whatever it is, it's so, so hard. It is so hard. Have you seen you are so not invited to my bat mitzvah? I mean, oh my gosh. <laughs> we have we can do a whole other episode on that. Phyllis, we love your book for people who haven't yet read it. It is filled with just like these incredible nuggets of wisdom and really actionable language and insights. It is truly such a handbook to middle school and it's positive and optimistic and empowering and all of the wonderful ways that we hope parents will approach this in their homes and how teachers, usually teachers get this a lot more right and educators than parents do. People who work in middle school, I believe are very special human beings, truly. Like it is a universe all its own. And our listeners can't see it, but Phyllis has a big fat smile on her face, which (laughs) is what every person who works in a middle school does because to be in that environment, you must love that environment. And there is so much love. So to the adults who are listening, who have kids in middle school environments, lean heavily on the adults who opt to be there eight, nine, 10 hours a day. They love being there. They want to be there to help your children and support your children. That's so true. And thank you for all the kind comments. But I will say that I wish parents and educators leaned on each other more 
because there's so much power in an open and honest exchange of information. Something is going on at home that might be getting in their way at school. If you had a fight in the car on the way to school, that might throw them off all day. Right. Helpful for us to know that. Yep. That's right. Yeah. I think people are wary of like putting too much on teachers' plates because they're like, oh God, they got to deal with kids all day. I don't want to add to it. But the times that I have spoken to educators and they say, no, we want to hear it. We want to know. It's not a burden to us. It helps us do our job better. So if you're listening and you're wondering like, oh, I'm a little worried. Do I say anything? Maybe it's not such a big deal or maybe, I I don't know. Phyllis is saying, reach out, share the information. It can go a long way in helping folks in school support your kid. So you're not just doing it alone or in a vacuum in two separate places. Phyllis, thank you so much. This is so fun. And we'll dissect, we'll do a whole separate thing on popularity and movies because that would be be hilarious. That'd be so fun. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And and nobody can talk a kid out of wanting to be popular. So (laughs) good luck. No, yeah, there's no way. But it does change and evolve in terms of perspective. We we have at least one unit, if not more, in the curriculum that we're writing specifically about popularity because I had a room full of like 46 graders and I said, can someone define popularity? And 35 hands went up and every single kid wanted to define it. And they all defined it a little bit differently, which is really fascinating. It's really fascinating. Tamor, Phyllis, we can't wait to continue the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. Yet. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.